we talked about some of the things that have to happen for the church to be a movement. There was actually seven points last week. You can go back and listen to that sermon. It wasn't too terribly long, uh, but there were seven truths about the making of a movement that we looked at, and one of those was multiplication. Um, and I, I talked about that using this phrase, be, make, and multiply. So folks that were uh, that became Christians, they learned how to be a disciple. They learned the basics of praying and reading their scripture and fellowshipping with other believers and being on mission with the gospel and centering all that on worship. But not only do they want to mature to a place of being a disciple, they, they also want to make another disciple. And so uh, at least reaching out to give the gospel to one other or helping a young believer to understand better the basics. But not just that, to reach a place where you're multiplying, and uh, the way you multiply is you raise up other disciple makers. And so this is when things really become a movement. You go from being uh, a, a, a growing by addition to growing by uh, multiplication. And I asked you to put on your connection cards where you thought you were. And I asked if you thought you were a pre, which meant you weren't a Christian yet, or you were a B, you wanted to grow in the basics, or you were a make meaning you were wanting to, to figure out how do I make disciple of another person, or you were multiply, and a hundred of you put something down on a card. And I told you all I was going to get you a book. I was like, wow, what was I thinking? <clears throat> um, but I was also excited to see your willingness to reflect on your own journey and to kind of come out into the light and say, this is where I think I am, and I want to grow further. And so <clears throat> we do have some books that you can pick up on your way out, uh, if, if you were a pre or if uh, you came the first time this morning and you know you're not a Christian, you're also welcome to grab some of these books. But there's some basic Christianity books back there that can help you understand the basics of Christianity, hence the title. Um, and then there's some books uh, for those who want to be a disciple. Uh, and it's a book called Devoted, and it's actually something that I wrote that we've used just to help establish people in the basics. And those of you that were make, which was the majority of you, about 50 of you put make as where you felt like you were, your book didn't make it. Um, yeah, I ordered 50 books, and uh, Megan's asking me, like, are they here? Are they here? I'm like, ah, they'll be here by Saturday. They were not here by Saturday. So uh, those of you that will be here through the summer, you can pick up your book, and others of you will probably send you some kind of an e-book or something. I don't want you to feel left out, Okay. And then multiply, your book came in, and uh, so if you, if you put down multiply, and your names are actually on it, there's little sticky notes, so that, uh, yeah, you, you know which book's yours, and we know if you got your book or not, all right? Um, as I was thinking through that and seeing all of the response from last week, I started thinking, uh, I think we, we should drill down deeper into the kind of culture that needs to be developed in our church in order for us to actually be a disciple-making church. It's one thing to say, be, make, multiply, and where are you? But what, what really has to happen in the day-in, day-out life of a church for this kind of a multiplication movement to happen? And I think one of the places where we go to understand the kind of culture that's needed is the book of Ephesians. And so I want to encourage you to read the book of Ephesians. Um, I'm going to preach uh, a portion of Ephesians for the next three weeks. And it's a portion that I, I think really gives us a lot of insight into the kind of culture that's required for there to be 
uh, a disciple-making movement. So the first part of Ephesians is really just about the gospel, which is pretty essential if a church is going to be a movement, right? Uh, one example, I'm just going to give you an example of, of uh, one of those scriptures. Ephesians 2, verse 14 here on the screen. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so what we <clears throat> find in the, in the church of Ephesus is that you've got two groups, Jews and Gentiles, who are trying to figure out how to be one, how to be church together. And it's not easy. I mean, Paul's describing it as a dividing wall of hostility. So that's the kind of relationships these folks had pre-Jesus. And now they've come to know Christ, and they've been reconciled with God through Christ. And now they're trying to figure out how do we live as reconciled people with each other in the church. And so this is a big part of the, of the context of the, of the book of Ephesians. And that the living out of that gospel is actually going to display the glory of God. To the rest of the world. We read that in places like Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it's saying church, the way you do church, the way you show your reconciliation with God and one another is actually displaying the manifold wisdom, the glory of God to those outside the church. And so and, and this goes almost without saying, because you hear it every week, but if you're going to be a, a disciple-making church, you've got to be gospel-centered. You've got to be saturated with the gospel, right? That's why you hear it here every week. You hear it preached every week. You hear, you hear it uh, displayed in the breaking of the bread and the taking of the cup. You hear it in the singing over and over and over. You, you hear the gospel, and we never get tired of the gospel around here. We never go, okay, got that, check the box, move on to something else. The gospel is the center, right? But then how does the gospel shape the church? Yeah, it's, it's the center, and you keep talking about it, and you keep preaching it and teaching it, but, but how, does, how does it really shape the church, both the fellowship inside the church and the mission that the church is on? And I think this is where this little section between Ephesians 3.14 and 4.16 is where we're going to look at in the next three weeks. I think it gives us a lot of really great practical things that help us understand how the church is shaped by the gospel. And so the next three sermons are going to be like this. They're going to be empowered, established, and equipped. Empowered, established, and equipped. I think these three things have to happen in a church for that to be a disciple-making church. So those of you that are, this is your last Sunday until maybe forever, or last Sunday until you come back in the fall, uh, I would encourage you to read Ephesians. I would encourage you to, to listen to the sermons on SoundCloud because when you come back, hopefully we, God's been doing some things over the summer and our culture may, perhaps has shifted. Uh, and so we want you to be a part of that even though you may be away for the summer. So we're going to look at the first section which I'm entitling Empowered. So uh, Ephesians 3.14 Again, it's on the heels of the Apostle Paul laying out the gospel and how the gospel is displayed in the church. And what you might expect him to then say is, let's get to work. Let's start doing stuff. Right? You got this theology, now let's, let's go. That's not what he does. What he does is he prays. 
And this is what we see in 3.14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you, and I'm going to stop right there. So here's what he's doing. He, he, he has given the theology, given the gospel, given how the gospel plays itself out in the, in the church, and now he's like, I'm going to get down on my knees before the Father, and I'm going to pray to the Father. And the, and, and the Father is over all, and he's over all, all families on earth. And in particular, he's over the church, right? He's the papa of the church. And so he's pointing, as he describes his prayer, he's pointing to the identity of the Christian. He's saying, Christians, you're, you're sons and daughters of God the Father, and as sons and daughters of God the Father, you are brothers and sisters of Christ with one another. And th- this is the identity that you have, and it's the reason why you can even pray, is because you've been given this identity by grace. This is why we call our church Mercy House, right? The house part. It's a household. We're a family. We understand that the church is family, and we understand that from, from Scripture, and, and look, you know, what he says in, in the first part of verse 16 about what the Father has, the riches of his glory. Now, glory is, is the reflection of his essence. Anything that glorifies God at some level reflects his essence. So when the NFL football player is kneeling and pointing up to the sky, he at least believes that what he's just done in making a touchdown is somehow reflecting the essence of Almighty God. Okay, now we can argue whether or not that really does re- reflect the essence, but, but that's, what, that's what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to give glory to God. He's trying to show the essence of the Almighty. And, and really what Paul's getting at is much more than touchdowns. What he's getting at is that God is dad, and dad can pick up the check. Now, some of you, when you, you go out with your parents, you let your parents pick up the check, right? I mean, I'm 49, and I go out with my dad, and I let him pick up the check, right? <laughs> and when I go out with my kids, they, they expect me to pick up the check, right? And, and so he's saying that here I'm praying to the Father, right? So he's kneeling before the Father who has this, these riches and, and, and power as well. He doesn't just have resources, but he has, he has power. And so here Paul is, is going to the source of everything. And he's praying to him who's above all, but not only the one who's above all, the one who he can call Abba, one that he can call Papa, right? Now, now think about that. As you pray to Papa, what do you ask for, right? What, what if you had one thing you could ask? I mean, actually, you can ask for more than one thing, right? What, what do you ask for? And look at what Paul asked for, right? Let's look again. Verse 16, according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you, and here's the request, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. He prays that the Ephesians would have power. That's why this, is, this sermon is called Empowered. And he's praying that this, spirit, that, that this power would come from the Holy Spirit. So he's talking to the Father, who's the first person of the Trinity, and asking Him to cause the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to give power. Now, what is this power? Is this like physical power? Is this like power to lift heavy boxes? Is this power to to fend off attack? No, power in your inner being. Now, when he says inner being, we could also say in your heart, 
right? The very, uh, the, the central most part of yourself, your mystical center, uh, this place where the Holy Spirit dwells, if you're a Christian. So it makes sense, the Holy Spirit's already there. And so he's asking the Father to activate the Spirit to give power in the inner being, in the heart. Um, now, that might have not been the first request that you would think of when you're praying to the God of the universe. But that's what Paul thought of. And Paul wrote a large part of the Bible. So I think we need to learn from Paul about the kinds of things that he asked for in prayer. It's actually one of the ways to mature your prayers is look at prayers in scriptures and go, oh, man, maybe me praying for just a few more hundred dollars is not the only thing I should be praying for. Maybe I should pray for some more things, uh, like that the Holy Spirit would give me power in my inner being. Now, power in the inner being. What, why would he pray that? He tells us why he prays that, and it's, it's awesome <laughs> what, he, what, what he says here. Verse 17 uh, 17, 18, 19. I'm going to read those three, and then we'll talk about why he's praying for power in the inner being. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that's a long sentence, and uh, your, uh, your literature professor would probably put red marks all over that, right? Um, but let's, let's pick through this and look at some of these phrases, because what he's doing, he's explaining why he's praying for power in the inner being. The main objective is that you'd have power to comprehend the love that Christ has for you. That's, that's the overall prayer, is he's praying for power in the inner being, such that you could comprehend the, the love that Christ has for you. Now, he's talked about how much love the Father has for the Ephesians, back in Ephesians 2. For instance, uh, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I love that. Ha <laughs> Pun not intended. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, You've been saved. So back in Ephesians 2, he's talking about how much the Father loves you and how he's shown that love by sending his Son to die in our place and, and to, to awaken dead sinners by grace. Right? Uh, but, but here he's saying he wants us to know that Christ loves us. So not only does the Father love us, but Christ loves us. And again, why, why pray this? Well, one is, is that comprehending this love it facilitates the subjective experience of that love that Christ has for us. So it's one thing to objectively know, right, to read in the Bible and go, oh, look, cool, Christ loves us, check the box, I understand that, put it in my list of things I believe. But it's a whole other thing to, to subjectively, experientially know that love. And he is asking the Holy Spirit, to, to give power to the Ephesians and their inner being such that they would have a subjective experience of the love of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? It's, it, it's really amazing, right? He, and the way he's saying it here in verse 17 is, is that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. So it's like that Christ would make a home in you. Now, it doesn't mean that Christ comes and goes, 
right, after you're a Christian. It doesn't mean you have to, like he, like, like, he gets mad at you and leaves, and then you have to pray him back in, and then he leaves again, you pray him back in. That's, that's not at all what, what he's talking about. And in fact, earlier in the book of Ephesians, he lets us know that once the Spirit is there, he's there. He's not going anywhere. Like, for instance, Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, all right, so that's when you became a Christian, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, objectively, God's Spirit comes to dwell inside of the Christian upon conversion, and he never leaves. He seals you for future salvation. But your experience of that subjectively comes and goes. And in part, that, that, that is related to your own a willingness to open yourself to the work of the Spirit. That's why he says that he would dwell in your heart through faith. So as you're exercising faith, trust, you're yielding yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit. It causes you, uh, Paul uses the phrase, be full of the Spirit. So that's a subjective experience of the work of the Spirit in your life. You can think of it like this. Uh, we had two different, a few years ago, we had two different house guests that stayed with us at different times uh, for several weeks, each of them at, at, at different times. One of those house guests would come in, go upstairs, go into their room, and shut the door and never talk to us. The other, which was Kevin Maforte, some of you know Kevin, uh, he'd come in, we would chat in the kitchen on, on his way in. He'd go up and do something, come back down, chat more, go back up, come back down, chat more. We had a lot of good conversations with Kevin, and we got to know Kevin better, and we came to love Kevin more, and, and he, I think, came to love us more. Um, but we were dwelling with both house guests, but we only deepened in our fellowship with one. And so the, the dwelling of Christ in our hearts through faith, something, something similar like that, right? Christ, through the power of the Spirit, comes to dwell in our hearts when we become a Christian. Nothing's going to change that if we've exercised saving faith in the gospel. But our experience of His dwelling with us, it's, it's, it's going to be dependent on our willingness to surrender to the initiation of the Spirit. And here, Paul is saying it depends on also you praying that the Spirit would give you that experience of Christ's love for you in a subjective way. Uh, number two, he's also praying for this inner strength through the Spirit because the comprehension of Christ's love stabilizes us. It stabilizes us. Look at verse 17, the, the second part, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. Two different illustrations there that he gives. So one is uh, agriculture, right? It's like a, a plant is rooted in the soil. And then grounded, or, or maybe even better, founded. That's an architectural term, talking about building a, uh, something on a solid foundation. Both of these are communicating stability. And so he's saying, Ephesians, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would give you power in your inner being to comprehend the love of Christ because I want you to be rooted. I want you to be grounded in that love. I don't know, anyone needs some stability in this room? Yeah. And, and you might think, well, why doesn't he say rooted and grounded in, in truth? Right? That's solid. Like, truth is solid. Some of you, some of you would prefer me say that. Right? And, and later on, he will talk about truth, but he'll even say speak truth in love in chapter 4. 
rooted in, in love. Well, any healthy relationship is rooted in love. It's grounded in love. Think about it. If our relationship with God was not rooted or grounded in love, what it would be like. We would either be relating to God in fear or we'd be relating to God because we want to get something from God. We don't really care about Him, which is honestly, in our own flesh, this is, how, this is what we gravitate toward, is it not? Where we're relating with God because we're afraid that if we don't, he, He's going to get us, or He's going to punish us, or not going to give us good things. And then it, it kind of switches over to, well, I'm actually trying to exploit God so He can give me what I want in the life that I, I'd like to have. And Paul is, is praying, no, no, I don't want you to have that kind of relationship with God. I want you to be rooted, grounded in love. And again, every healthy relationship is rooted, grounded in love. In a few weeks, Billy and Gina will be uh, standing before God and their friends and family, and they will be making co a covenant with one another, right? Amen. It's going to be good. It's going to be an awesome time. And, and they're going to be making these promises to one another, right? Unconditional promises. And why? Because cause, cause they, they, they believe that they're, they're rooting their relationship in truth, right? Did, did Billy study up on Gina and say, well, Gina has these good characteristics, and, and therefore now I'm going to root and ground my relationship in these great characteristics? No, he loves her, right? And she loves him. And, it, and again, it's, it's, it's not just like touchy-feely kind of love, but, but it is unconditional love for one another, and they are going to root and ground their love for one another on May 18th, right? And so this is what folks are doing in the water, the very cold water. Actually, Billy would be one of these, uh, out in the very cold water at Puffer's Pond. They're saying, I'm rooting, I'm grounding myself, right, in the love that Christ has for me. And so that, that, that baptism is part of what it's communicating is this relationship, this covenantal relationship that they have with God. But again, it, it's interesting. Why, why pray that they would be able to comprehend the love? I mean, why not just tell them? Just say, Jesus loves you, right? Here it is in the Bible, which is important. Like, we need this. I'm telling you that. I'm, I'm showing you in the Scriptures, right? But why, why pray? That, 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 that you'd be able to comprehend it. Well, the reason is, is because it's super rational. The understanding of Christ's love is super rational. And Paul says it in two different ways in his explanation of, of, of the prayer or, or what he hopes to be the product of the prayer. Like verse 18, he says, may, may have strength, okay, there's that power thing, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, right? That, that's one of his ways of saying, this is incomprehensible. <laughs> the height, the depth, the length, the width of, of God, the dimensions of God's love. I've, mentioned, I've mentioned this before of, of going to the Grand Canyon and experiencing the depth and the width and the height and the, uh, of the Grand Canyon. And I was looking up some of, some of the uh, statistics about the Grand Canyon that, that, that the maximum distance rim to rim is 18 miles. Right? The, the highest elevation of the canyon, 8,000 feet. Right? That's a mile and a half. It's like 740 stories. It, it's incomprehensible. So I, I can read those, those truths 
And you go, wow, 8,000 feet, that's really deep. But it's a whole other thing to stand at the rim of the canyon and look at it. And honestly, even if you, those of you that have been to the canyon, and you, you still can't comprehend it. You're like, I need like two months to, to just stand here and walk around and look at it and just try to absorb it. You just can't, and that's just the canyon, and God made that with his like pinky finger, right? And Paul, Paul is saying, this, this is what the love of God is like. It, it's like incomprehensible, the dimensions of it. And this is why he's praying that, that God would give the, this, this power in the inner being to the Ephesians such that, that they could comprehend how much Christ loves them. And then, and then he, he says it again in, in another way, uh, more more overt way, 19, in verse 19, it says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, I, I can tell you truth about the love of Christ. I, I can teach you from the Bible. I can show you the Old Testament. And that's important, and I need to do that. But for you to comprehend it, you're going to have to have a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to comprehend the love of Christ. And that when you do have that supernatural understanding of the love of Christ, it roots you. It grounds you so that you have this stability to go through whatever comes your way. And this is, in part, why he is praying for this work. So I wonder if anyone here needs that work of the Holy Spirit. Anybody? I know I do. Absolutely. And again, I think this is a great place to start in talking about the kind of of culture that we want to have in a church such that that church makes more disciples. Is that we we don't start with, oh, here's some strategies and planning and goal setting or whatever the case may be, but we start with the love of Christ. If we don't have this, you're not going to make authentic disciples. You're going to make some weird organizational thing happen. But if you're rooted and you're grounded in the incomprehensible love of Jesus, then that's going to overflow into some authentic, genuine disciple making. You're not going to be able to not make disciples because you've experienced the depths of Christ's love for you. You want to share that with other people and help make them disciples. You, you want to see other people who can make disciples be raised up so they can tell a whole bunch of other people so that those folks can also experience the same depth of the love of Christ that you've experienced. This, again, this is why it's so, this is so important to start at this place of being empowered to comprehend the love of Christ. But not only to pray for ourselves for that, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ to also experience those things, that they too would have this subjective experience of the love of Christ. Now, I think for most of us, we, we hear that and we go, wow, that sounds great, but we feel a little bit of faithlessness in regard to that, that, that the Holy Spirit would actually do something subjective like that. We actually like to keep the Holy Spirit over here in the truth category, which is important, okay? And what I don't want to say is that you base your faith on feelings. Absolutely not. There are going to be days when you're not feeling it. You're not feeling the indwelling work of the Spirit. And I want you to, to 
to stay with Christ because of what is true, but to pray that God would bring that experience of his dwelling to you in a fresh way. But if, if we're going to be able to be energized and empowered and continue in faithfulness to God, we're going we're gonna to need this authentic experience of the love of Christ. And this is indeed why, why Paul is praying this for the Ephesians. And I think Paul knew the Ephesians were going to have a hard time having enough faith to believe that the Spirit could do something like that, as we do as well. And so look at what he says to shore their faith up. This is beautiful, right? Verse 20, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This would be known as a, a doxology, right? Doxology, two words. Doxa means glory, ology you know what that means, study of. So study of the glory of God, the doxology. And so Paul goes from praying to talking about the product that he hopes comes out of his prayer request to giving glory to God, which every prayer needs to begin and end with God. It's a great prayer, right? It's God-centered. And he's saying, this thing that I'm praying will eventually bring glory to God, which should be all of our prayers that what we're praying would bring glory to God. Now, it's, it's pretty awesome that what brings glory to God is what is also good for us. Now, sometimes we don't really understand fully what's good for us, but, but that is indeed what is true, that what brings glory to God is all, also what is our greatest good. And so he ends this prayer with this doxology. And I, I love what he's saying here, that, that he is able... God is able, right? He, he's praying to the one who has the riches. Dad has all the power. He has all the resources. That's the father that he's praying to. He says God is able and able not only to do what you could come up with in your mind, but to do even more than you could come up with in your mind. It, it, it reminds me of like a little kid who is being told by their parent, uh, what do you want to do? You name it. Anything. Let's do it. And the little kid tries to think as hard as they can, what can we do that's so awesome and amazing? And they say, let's go get ice cream at McDonald's. And you're like, totally. We can do that, right? <laughs> when the parent could have flown them to Italy for gelato, okay? <laughs> could have done that. Had that in the bank account, not my bank account, but some parents have in their bank account, right? But the kid doesn't know that the parent could do that, right? And so Paul, Paul sets this stage to say, you, you, you can't even think of what's possible in regards to what God could do for His glory and our good. Now, a lot of, a lot of times we use this immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine when we're asking for something that has some selfish motives. <laughs> and we go, Lord, you can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So I'm imagining a Land Rover, you know? That's not what Paul's talking about. And, and notice what he's saying here, that he's still asking the power to be at work, where? In us. In us. 
He's not asking for this immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine being out here in the external world. He's asking for it to be in the inner being. He's like, Father, please activate the Holy Spirit to do something in the Ephesians, in their inner being, that is beyond anything we could ever imagine. That's what he's praying. And the reason is because he wants to see God glorified. God made great. And he's made great. Did you you see that? In the church. Right? That to him be glory. Where? In the church. He doesn't say in the individual Christian. Although that certainly happens. But what he's praying for the Ephesians, he's saying, Ephesians, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would do work in your inner being, in your individual heart. But why? So that you, church, can be the church that God had in mind. And that you could be a church that does immeasurably more than all we could have imagined. And church, that that could happen where in Christ Jesus. See that other part? In the church and in Christ Jesus. Jesus, and here he goes, he, he centers it on Christ at the end of this prayer. He brings it right back to Jesus. And he's praying for this, this church in Ephesus to, to be this Christ-centered, spirit-empowered church that's rooted, grounded in the love of Christ. He knows they're not going to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ if the Holy Spirit doesn't do that supernatural work to help them comprehend that love. And so for some of you in the, in the room, you, you don't know Christ. And I want to encourage you this morning to put your faith and your trust in Christ, the crucified Christ, the one who died in your place so that your sins could be forgiven. You know why he did that? He loves you. He loves you. That is incomprehensible, I know, to some degree. But you can know enough <laughs> about that gospel truth such that you can put your faith in this Jesus who's died for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will spend an eternity growing in your comprehension of the love of Christ. We encourage you this morning to put your faith and trust in him. And for those of you that you have already put your faith in Christ, then I'm, I'm going to encourage you to pray this morning, just as Paul did, as, as he kneeled before the Father, and he said to the Father, would, would you activate the Holy Spirit to, to do a work of power in my inner being, but not just pray for you, pray for those around you, pray for the, the people that are your brothers and sisters in Christ, that they would also experience a powerful work of the Holy Spirit, and that that work would cause them to be deeply rooted, grounded in the love of Jesus. And that would refresh us, right? That would empower us, that that would give an authenticity and a genuineness to our evangelism, to our disciple making, that we wouldn't be doing it out of fear or out of some organizational expectations or whatever the case may be, but because we love Jesus so much. And it's because he's loved us in a way that, that the Spirit has helped us to understand. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit uses, or, or the, the primary thing the Holy Spirit uses to help us understand the love that Christ has for us is a reminder of the gospel. 
And this is, this is why we, we talk about this good news of Christ dying in our place, forgiving our sins, resurrecting from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father, coming back to judge and to get His church that He loves so much. We, we're reminded of that every time we come to this table. Reminded of the love that Christ offered to His disciples as He's, he's experiencing that last supper with them and He's experiencing betrayal and denial and, and, and He takes bread and He breaks it and He gives it to them saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's love. That's love. That's not mere sentiment. That's love that's backed up that very next day as He gives His life on the cross. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. When he says this new covenant, he's talking about this, this new way that the people of God are going to display the manifold wisdom of God, the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever through all generations, right? He's saying, this is, this is what this thing that I, he's about to do on the cross, that's what this is going to provide, is the grace needed. So sinners like you and me could be forgiven and reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, and become a church that is rooted, grounded in the love of Jesus. And so if you're a Christ follower, we're going to encourage you to come to the table and receive the bread and receive the cup. And as you're doing that, to think about it, we, we think about different ways. There's so many facets to the Lord's Supper. But this morning, I want to encourage you to think about it in regards to Christ loving you. And then when you get back to your seat, I want to encourage you, if uh, you don't have to do this, but it, just get down on your knees before the Father and just pray that God's Holy Spirit would do a work in you to, to better comprehend the love that Christ has for you. And then pray for those around you. And you're certainly welcome to pray with, with them out loud. Or can come back to the back and I'll be back there with a few other leaders. And you can pray with us as well. But let's just pray that God would do a fresh work in the hearts of this church. Such that we become even more grounded in the love of Christ. So let's pray. God, thank you that you love us. Lord, we, we forget that so easily. And if we don't forget it, we oftentimes are numb to it. Lord, we can recite it. We, we can answer correctly on a, a doctrine test. Yes, Jesus loves me. But Lord, we're numb to it. Our hearts are in such need of refreshment this morning. I know mine, mine included, Lord. And so, Lord, would, would you come and, by the power of your Spirit, in the inner beings, the brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, would, would you give them the power to comprehend your love? And that out of the rootedness that comes from that, Lord, would, would we desire to read our Bibles, to pray, to share the, our faith, to fellowship that would be coming from a rootedness in the love that you have for us. Thank you for this, this concrete reminder of the bread and the cup of, of how you 
didn't just love with words, Lord, but you showed your love and you poured out your very life so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to you and to one another. And so would you bless the bread and the cup and bless our time together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.